I think there's something about Asterios that is, um, <laughs> let me get in my thoughts for a second, Andrew. You know I'm sorry. I, I don't mean to put this. you on the spot like that, but, but, no. um, Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast. I'm Joseph Jarowski here with Todd Mack, and each week we look at a great character and a great story. Today we're talking about Asterios Polyp from the graphic novel Asterios Polyp. The graphic novel was written, drawn, and colored by David Mazzuchelli. Mazzuchelli. I don't know if it's a... It's. We're going to go with Mazzuchelli. Uh, and it was published in 2009. Uh, Mazzuchelli is perhaps best known for his work as artist on Batman Year One, one of the most iconic Batman stories. And in, two, and in 2010, uh, Asterios Polyp is four Eisner Awards and won the awards for Best New Graphic Novel, Best Writer Slash Artist, and Best Lettering. All righty. So, Todd, how did you come to this work? <laughs> well, uh, I'd never heard of Asterios Polyp. I'd heard of uh, Batman Year One. Um, have, you, have you read Batman Year One? No, I saw a thing on Netflix, like a, like a cartoon version of it. Yeah, they did do an animated movie of it. Um, animated movie, sorry. I wasn't trying to be snooty. <laughs> <laughs> we call it but an animated it sure, it sure film. Came off that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, we were at your house discussing one day uh, comics that we could do that were not superhero comics, and you recommended this and lent it to me, and I read it today. Um, and I will have things to say. <laughs> <laughs> about it. I have a. I I have. I'm still trying to process my reaction to this work, so my, I hope that you can help me out with it. Yeah. How did the, you come uh, to it? Um, when it was, uh, even before its release, it was getting a lot of buzz um, from comic book websites that cover, you know, upcoming graphic novels and that sort of thing. Um, Mazzuchelli is a noted artist in the work, and it seemed as though he'd been putting a lot of time and. Uh, effort into this this new graphic novel that was going to be completely original and uh, drawn and written by him and there was yeah right when it came out it got a lot of positive reviews and it was kind of inter- it, it has been kind of interesting to watch it because when it first came out uh, all of the first wave of discussion and reviews were about how this is going to be part of kind of the graphic novel canon again right <laughs> our, our buzzword buzzword of canon and uh like almost every universally that was being said and then within a year like the conversation just kind of stopped about it like i I don't hear it come up or or get discussed as often as you would expect for the amount of praise it received uh right upon its release but uh just in that sometime after the first year was published I, i i bought it and read it and it does a lot of really fascinating things with the 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 way the story is told with his art and with the coloring within it things that are unique to the comic book form like i I, I don't think the story could ever be adapted into another medium the lettering is is beautiful and meaningful yeah and the just the palette of colors that he chooses from one scene to the next is very evocative so i i enjoyed the I, i remember being very impressed with the craft of the story but but when I okay, this was a few months ago when you were you we were actually in the same room together and I handed you a whole bunch of graphic novels I couldn't really remember too much of the exact story <laughs> and then uh, we we said we'd be doing this one and I was able to get another copy of it because you have my copy I was able to get another copy from the library today and I just reread it and I thought I'm glad I don't have to do the long summary of this one because it bounces 
all over the place. All right. Well, would you like to give us a short uh, a short summary of it, and then we'll jump into a long summary. Yeah. Um, so the short summary is that Asterius Polyp is a professor of architecture, and he's renowned and respected and known. And on his fiftieth birthday, lightning strikes his apartment, and <laughs> it burns the complex down. And he goes to a bus station and buys a ticket to as far away as the cash he has on hand will let him go. And then he kind of goes on a little journey of self-discovery, kind of thinking back on moments of his past and his, and, you know, intercut with his present life in this small town where he ends up. All right. If that sounds interesting to you, uh, then bless your heart. <laughs> <laughs> No, it actually is a really interesting story. Um, and if it sounds interesting to you, then uh, we'll have links in our show notes to where you can pick it up on Amazon. Uh, you could check it out at your local library. And now we will dive into a deep discussion. Of, Real quick, before yes. we do the big spoilery synopsis from Utah, I wanted to put out a call to our listeners if any of you are artistically inclined. We have a little icon on our web page and that comes up if you download the uh, if you subscribe to the podcast of kind of an abstract microphone thing which i think both todd and i view as a placeholder for our eventual real logo <laughs> <laughs> that neither of us have produced uh as of yet so if any listeners have any interest in uh producing something that could be used uh again just on the website and as the little icon when people search for protagonist podcast uh, on itunes we would appreciate it i think we would call and that cover would, cover art would, yes cover art and we would uh we'd allow you to choose a few episodes for us to <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> to discuss a few topics for us to discuss as as thank you I'll, throw, I'll just throw this out here while we're while we're tapping into the talents of our listeners. Uh, the music that we have is just garage band like stock music. If anybody wants to compose a little jingle for us, that'd be fine too. <laughs> just a just a thought. Now the financial reward for your efforts will be negligible, <laughs> but our thanks will be many. <laughs> and with that, my synopsis of Asterius Polyp. You may notice that I sort of lose interest in uh, in detail as this goes on, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, this story begins with an overhead shot of a city. Suddenly, a bolt of lightning shoots down from the sky towards a point in the city. We then see the inside of an apartment. Uh, it's filthy. There are loads of unpaid bills on the table, and this clearly washed-out, lonely, pathetic man is watching porn on TV. Uh, lightning hits the house. There's a fire. The man who we will come to know as Asterios Polyp, uh, grabs his shoes, an old lighter, a watch and a pocket knife and runs out the door. His loads and loads of books are left behind to burn in the fire. Uh, a narrator who we find out later is Asterios's unborn identical twin brother tells us that Asterios has been a successful professor of architecture at Cornell university in Ithaca, New York. Uh, but he's a, he's what's called a paper architect, which turns out is someone who only designs buildings on paper, but whose designs are never built. Seems symbolic somehow. <laughs> Asterios had always been brilliant. He'd succeeded in high school and then in college, then as professor. After the fire, Asterios wanders around the city for a while. Then he pays all of his money for a bus ticket that will take him as far away from the city as possible. Uh, the story's broken up between flashbacks um, to Asterios' past, in which he was a creepy, crotchety, self-absorbed, womanizing narcissist, and strange dream sequences in which he speaks with his still- uh, stillborn twin. I'll focus here mainly on the main story and not the dream sequences. 
you can just trust me that they are uh, dreamy. So Asterios, Asterios takes a bus to a small town called Apogee. There, a man called Stiff hires him as a mechanic and agrees to let him live in his house. Asterios doesn't know anything about mechanics, but he goes to the library and studies, uh, studies up on it, which seems to be sufficient. Uh, he's a pretty smart guy. Uh, in flashback now, we meet a woman named Hannah who's quiet and actually seems like a decent human being. Uh, Asterios is clearly not a decent human being, but somehow they fall in love and get married. Uh, they couldn't be more opposite from each other, but the theme of opposite seems to be important in the story. I'm sure we'll talk about this later. Uh, meanwhile, <laughs> Asterios has been led to Stiff's home, where he meets Stiff's son, Jackson, whose nickname is Running Dog. Stiff's wife is this larger-than-life woman called Ursula, who believes strongly in astrology, and she rambles on to Asterios about the stars and a bunch of other things. And it kind of seems like she's crazy, but there's also something kind of sensible in her ramblings, I think. Meanwhile, we see that Asterios uh, had, as we said, had mentioned uh, married Hannah, and then she had worked as a sculptor, but eventually they got divorced because of, I don't know that we really get a really clear reason, except that he's horrible and she's good. And so, uh, and in the present, Asterios helps Stiff to build a treehouse for a running dog. Uh, that's Stiff's son. Uh, and it's the first thing that Asterios has ever really built, and it looks like a nice treehouse. Yeah, it does look solid. solid. Uh, Asterios makes some friends in the town, and then he's able to get a a solar car from Stiff. Uh, He drives away, heading towards Minnesota. A huge snowstorm blows in, however, and the car eventually stops working since there is no sun to drive it. Uh, He gets out of the car and makes his way to a lonely house in the woods. It turns out that the house belongs to Hannah, his ex-wife, who never remarried after the divorce. They begin to reminisce about old times. They become combined, not through, or they they sort of connect, not through this uh, intimate physical encounter, of which Asterios has had uh, loads (laughs) throughout the book, but because they actually truly seem to love each other, the book ends with them sitting upright on a couch, staring out the window. Hannah says, this is nice. And then we see a panel of a huge meteor hurtling towards them. Uh, Jackson, just their towards house. Their house. Towards their house. Uh, Jackson, who is running dog, who is Stiff's son, looks out the window of his treehouse, points to the sky, and says, "Mommy, look, a shooting star." To which Ursula, Stiff's wife, uh, who's snuggling up with Stiff, also in the treehouse with running dog, tells her son to make a wish. The end. <laughs> That's a, I'm sorry. It's a very Good strange job. story. Uh, we missed the fact. I I, yes. I I failed to mention a couple of things. Uh, the pocket knife, the watch, and the lighter, uh, all are um, items from Asterios's past, and they become kind of touchstones for him. And at some point, he has a, a conversation with Ursula about um, about the meteor hitting the Earth, and uh, and so we see it again. Well, it's, and in the di- in the diner, they have a discussion about whether a meteor causes. No, maybe that's what dinosaurs. maybe that's what it is. At- and there, yeah, there's a guy in the diner who. Oh yes, that's it. There's a guy in the diner, and asteroids. his he his like mission in life is to watch the sky and look for asteroids that are going to hit Earth, and uh, and now eventually at the end of this book it happens. So Joseph, um, we talk in this in this uh, podcast about great characters and great stories. I uh, I'm I'm interested in why you chose Asterius Palm. <laughs> As a great character in a great story, besides the fact that it's a well-known comic that's not a superhero comic. Uh, there was a review I read, and it was from, I think the website was called Pop Culture, and we'll get the link in the show notes. And they said, uh, the reviewer was saying that they had recently done a, a whole bunch of reviews of what are c- kind of considered more literary 
graphic novels. So the, the ones that get more respect than the genre comic books do. And he said one thing that he found in doing this is that in most of the well-respected, more literary graphic novels, the, um, the protagonists tended to be a lot more flawed, which he felt... Um, a lot of the reviewers and commentaries and, and summaries that he was looking at, people found that to be more relatable than the heroic figures we find in a lot of the genre comic books, where the the heroes tend to be, you know, iconic and uh, aspirational, whereas in the more literary ones, the flawed characters are more human. Do you buy that argument? I think there's truth in what it's saying i don't know that there's inherently more value in the flawed characters i think it's accurate to say that in the genre comics often they're more they're, they're more strictly there as kind of uh emblems of virtue and uh i mean not, yeah not, i can just i'm like m- in my mind is now racing I, well, like I think that's more a thousand examples of, the, of the, but more of the DC Silver Age superhero style. Um, And this is one of the things that Marvel Comics is credited with doing is making the Marvel superheroes more flawed and more human and have more feet of clay rather than the kind of, uh, you know, iconic uh, Superman and Wonder Woman of DC. Yeah, I mean, uh, it seems like a... Who's like... I don't know. That, uh, all due respect, but that seems like a tough argument to make if you're... If you, you know, pull your lens back a half inch, then <laughs> all of the <laughs> flawed characters start to come in. I mean, there's so many, there are so many counterexamples to that. Right. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I don't want to reveal too much about the protagonist podcast studios, but I'm looking at a wall uh, that has a lot of superhero art. <laughs> and I see the thing from the Fantastic Four, who's pretty flawed. I see the Incredible Hulk, who's pretty flawed. Uh, Captain America, who's got his man out of time. All of so the yeah, X-Men. Yeah, I think there's... Batman. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but even like, but I, I think it's valid to say though, like if if we're talking about like Batman as a flawed character, he's still like representative of uh, the perfection when it comes to drive and uh, honing your body, right? You know, there's things that are completely unattainable. Whereas uh, to be a sad sack <laughs> who ends up in apartment after a divorce, you know, that's that's not unattainable. That's <laughs> that's true. <laughs> for a lot of humanity well it is true that there's Um, nothing about him that is remarkable and and even somebody like any of the x-men who are tragically flawed in practically every way there is something remarkable about every single one of them right and and i don't think it's fair to say there's nothing remarkable about a serious polyp but it is kind of a i mean so he's famous as as you said this paper architect and he is uh, within his his circle. Uh, you know, he's recognized as a brilliant mind, and it says, you know, he kind of easily made his way through college, through high school, college, and and grad school, and immediately went uh, into into teaching. And, and and this is shown in fascinating ways within this. And I guess maybe for why this is is a famous comic book, 
it in some ways it's kind of like uh have you read Cormac McCarthy's The Road? Uh no, but I'm I'm fairly familiar with the premise. Right. So so the story itself is not the most innovative story in history. It's that is the story of uh father and son who are um walking through a post apocalyptic wasteland and kind of trying to survive. And that's basically the story, which isn't the most unique or compelling story, but that book won so many right. awards and is so well respected and it is because of how the story is told. So so let me let me ask you this. Let me rephrase my question a, a tiny bit uh, differently. And this may – sometimes I have a way of expressing things that seems confrontational, and I just don't mean it that way at all. I'm actually, like, <laughs> genuinely curious about this. But uh, it's easy for me to see in reading this book why critics would say, this is amazing. My question for you is, did you pick this book because critics say this is amazing or because you think this is amazing? I think the craft of the storytelling is okay. amazing. I don't think the storytelling or the story itself is is amazing. Or I certainly wouldn't hold Sirius Polyp up as like an aspirational figure <laughs> anyway. But that doesn't mean that he's. I, I, it doesn't mean he's not an interesting All right. figure. I buy that. Uh, and I was about to say the the craft of how the story is told, like the way it shows that a Sirius Polyp is. Uh, egotistical and uncaring for his girlfriend in comic book form is really fascinating to watch. So it'll have things like he will, it'll just have uh, one, one page will be him and Hannah sitting on a couch and he'll be saying, why don't you tell that story? And she'll start telling the story. And then his word balloon will encroach over hers as he keeps adding in details. And, and you see her like from one panel to the next, you see her kind of physically shrink, but also her word balloon gets Uh smaller as his gets louder over the top of his, which is something you can do in comic books that you can't do anywhere else. And it's so the craft of the comic book medium within this is a very impressive feat by someone who really knows <laughs> how how to tell a story on the comic book yeah. page. Um, another example is uh, he walks in. This is when they, when they're kind of first meeting each other, and he sees she's a sculptor, and he sees her art for the first time, and he says, "Oh, this is really amazing!" And you get now a shot of her with a spotlight shining uh-huh. on her. And she's kind of glowing with with pride that he's complimenting her work. And then he starts to go into very academic and esoteric uh, theory, uh, just really showing off his knowledge of art theory more than making any commentary about her work or certainly than any compliment towards her. And and you see her eyes droop down and uh, from one panel to the next, the spotlight moves away from her and ends up shining on Asterios as... Um, his whole point in starting this conversation with her was clearly to show off his own intelligence. So not a, you know, not a good character trait, but, uh, told uniquely and masterfully uh, within the graphic novel. Actually, as I take a step back and look at this, it's, it's strange. Uh, I mean, there are moments in it where I'm like, what's what's going on here? Um, these dream sequences with his brother and it, it is, there's a lot about this. that's very highbrow. And I, I, I'm, there, there are things where I, I can say sort of on an intellectual level, I can say, like, I get it. Um, it doesn't speak to me. I had a, I had a, a professor once who said that he, we were talking about how do you approach art um, that, you, that you just don't connect with very well. Maybe it's some form of abstract art that just, it just isn't really your cup of tea. Um, and he said... Uh, this guy's a, he's been a curator at important museums uh, in Barcelona and different places. And he said um, that one way that he approaches those kinds of things is to say, I understand what's going on with this work, but it doesn't speak to me. 
and there are, there are moments in this where I can understand, I, I can see uh, the genius of the craft, but there are parts of this, uh, this book that don't particularly speak to me. Uh, having said that, I actually really like Asterios's arc. And I think that one of the mm-hmm. most brilliant things is the way that it begins and the way that it ends. And the, the, the beginning, we have this sad, just washed out, uh, he's filthy and... He's lonely. He's totally he's lonely, isolated. totally isolated. And even the use of this, um, the, he, he's watching TV and it's clear. Uh, um, and all of the, there is, there's a fair amount of um, uh, innuendo and some, you know, images of, of sexuality in this. Like you were saying earlier before we started recording, it feels kind of like you're watching a Picasso or something. <laughs> um, but... But the fact that he, I mean, pornography is like the lowest, cheapest level of human interaction, I think. And, um, and, and that's sort of the, where he's at. And at the end, we have this complete, um, like, a opposite. And opposites play a really important role in the story. But at the end, he's found Hannah. And now of all the times in the story where you would think this is the moment where they're going to have this beautiful, you know, romantic sexual encounter, um, they just sit and talk. And again, this play with the word bubbles where um, they're, so it's, it's hard to describe this uh, through a podcast, but you have his word bubbles are always square with very clean lines. Hers are always rounded and feel sort of warmer. Um, and then there's a little tail that always points to the person who's, speaking so i so if i'm in a if i'm in a comic uh then above me will be my word bubble and a little a little tail coming out of the word bubble that points to me um and the the tails of their word bubbles are intertwined at the end of this they start to 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 intertwine uh in a way that i've never seen in any other uh comic book uh but it's beautiful and then they sit next to each other and their hands are on the couch and their hands are almost touching but they're not quite touching but you get the feeling that this is this is as close as Asterios has ever been to anyone, and they're and they're not even touching, <laughs> and it's really beautiful. And then and then they sit on the couch and they look out the window, and the, and she says, "This is nice." And for me, uh, it re- that really is nice, right? And further cementing the the kind of parallels between the opening and <laughs> the closing, uh, the opening when he's in his lone loneliness ends with the you know the lightning strike that sets his mm-hmm. apartment on fire, and from which he runs. And there's no way they are walking away from the asteroid. <laughs> uh, but but so, something from the heavens, you know, strikes right. at these moments. One of absolute loneliness and the second of actual contentment and connection with another human being. Yeah. In, in a way that it's pretty clear Asterios has never tried or achieved to have um, a real human connection. Yeah. I mean, he, he approaches something like that when he builds the treehouse with Stiff. Um, you can see him change and he actually does have kind of a beautiful arc as, as a character. Uh, it's simple. It's not, there's nothing earth shattering about it. Uh, but it's very well executed. Um, it's believable and, uh, Todd, you're pulling me around more on the character actually. (laughs) And uh, and on the story itself, I was at first I was saying it's all about how the story is being told, but now I'm feeling more, uh, uh, there's more to the story itself. I think that there, I I think that there is, I, I, I don't know. Like I said before, there are elements in this story that just don't speak to me. Uh, but him as a character and his arc, I think, is beautiful. It's simple. Um, and it, it may be the simplest thing about the story. 
uh, in a, in, where he's doing all kinds of creative things with art and color and palette and, and uh, text and lettering. Um, maybe the most beautiful thing is this very simple thing that he does where he takes a man who's broken and lonely and, and sends him on a journey in which he finds a way to connect with other human beings. And in the end, the story, the story ends and he, he's found that connection that he, um, that he never had before. That to me is always, it will always be a compelling story. So what, I guess in his journey, let's leave out the, the kind of craft of, of sure. the comic book. Uh, what allows him to grow once he reaches, what's the name of the city? It's the high Apogee. point. In, yeah. Which is the high point in an arc, right? <laughs> right. Like so what in that city allows him to evolve in a way that he never could when he was this renowned professor? The, there seems to be some element of letting go when he leaves his apartment in the fire he has to grab the, only the things that are most important to him. And he grabs the pocket knife, which is a memory uh, for him of Hannah. It's something that they fa- he found uh, in the sand at the beach when he was with her. So it's a memory. When they were, was it on their honeymoon or one of their first dates? Yeah. Um, they're at the beach and they're looking for something in the sand. And he says, oh, look, it's a, it's a pocket knife. And so he has the pocket knife. He has the lighter, which was his father's. And the watch, which was a gift to him from his mother when he was when he was no, young. No, the watch was the first thing he earned. He saved his allowance for oh, two years. Oh, right, to buy it. right. So he picks these three things, and and there's a conversation later. on. So we see that at the very beginning, he grabs those three things. But then later on, when uh, he and Hannah are first moving in together, he's kind of overwhelmed by how much stuff Hannah has. <laughs> he's he's very Spartan and clean, and uh, his apartment is all hard lines and and right, right angles. And she just brings in all this stuff that's soft and, and curvy, and, and he just he's struggling to to talk about you know to to understand it. And he and he kind of says you know do, you know in the end does any any of our belongings matter matter? And she says to him like if you could only grab three things from the house, what would you grab? And he doesn't have an answer at that point. Yeah, which which is telling. There's there, but there seems to be as he is grabbing those three things, there's something that he's letting go. And it, it seems like it's fundamental to his growth as a character that he let go and let all of those books burn in the fire because that it seems like that was the thing that was holding him back was his ego and his this nar- this narcissistic tendency to take over conversations and you know seduce all of his students with his brilliance and I mean you and I have both seen people like that to just love to hear themselves talk about things that nobody really understands. <laughs> and, and I'm, as we're doing this podcast, I know about <laughs> subjects that I am sure some people, uh, hear that, hear that we're doing this podcast and they're like, why? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, but, but there, but there's something about being stripped of everything, uh, when he gets to Apogee, uh, that allows him to, to start fresh. And it says something about the, his, I don't know, his true nature or, or something inside of him that once he's able to let go of that, all of the, the academic side of things that he actually is a pretty decent guy. Right. Cause he makes, uh, I guess you said he starts to make better, uh, connections almost right away. And they're all so weird and flawed, stiff and Ursula and oh, yeah. the- running dog and the, the, the revolutionary band people. And I mean, they're all so weird and the kind of people that, uh, you know, a highbrow professor from Cornell would have no business dealing with. 
Uh, but mm-hmm. but there's something in having let go of that past when his apartment burns. I mean, it's the best thing that could have happened to him. Right, and yeah, because he, he, I don't think it's a mistake that he's at the top of this giant apartment building, and you know this this tower, uh, and it's filled with his marks of his intellectualism. Yeah, uh, and he doesn't get rid of it immediately. Uh, we mentioned that already in the in the diner, like someone says something about the asteroids, you know, taking out the dinosaurs. Someone else says, wait, what about the dinosaurs? And he goes into this long and complex (laughs) discussion of when this theory originated, who was the first one to say it, how it's become the most accepted theory for the extinction of the dinosaurs, you know, things that no one in that diner wants to hear. (laughs) And he, so he still has some of that, uh, showman that defined him for much of his life. Uh, but that kind of wears away while he's in the city. Yeah. There seems like I have something else that I was going to add to that, but but then I'd just be talking to hear myself talk. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was going to say he. Like, well, I mean, I, I like the point you made that these are not the people that he would have rubbed shoulders with at any other stage of his life, right? And it's when he is at what I'm sure he would have considered to be the lowest point of his life that he starts to form the best connections with people. So he listens to, uh, what's, what's the wife's name? Stiff's wife. Ursula. Uh, Ursula. He listens to Ursula do her ramblings about, uh, the astrology, astrology. And he like makes a few subtle corrections, but she acknowledges all of them and already knows about them. Right. <laughs> you know? Uh, and he, so he kind of lets it go. Cause he says, Oh, okay. She's, she already kind of knows what I was, you know, she knows my argument before I was going to make it. Right. And he, with Stiff, he has the first chance to actually build something. And it's Stiff's design. It's not his own design, which I think is important. Yeah. That he He's working on something so, that someone else has thought of. And he compliments it, and they work together, and they build it. And he, for so much of his life, was only inside of his own head was anything actually being accomplished. And that taking this kind of, you know, it, it's a simple and basic but good treehouse design. You know, right. I mean, for one, it's a treehouse. So it's not going to be super complex. Uh, but Sif kind of says, well, you know, I, I drew this up and you can look at it and tell that a series could probably <laughs> do something more complex on paper than what Stiff has, has shown to him. But he just looks at him and says, it's good, which, uh, several of the first pages are just him tearing student after student down right. for everything that they've shown him. And I can only imagine the students were doing better work <laughs> than what Stiff has drawn here. Uh, but it seems a series has, has gained a little, um, humility. Humility and also, I guess, uh, empathy or, or compassion for, for other people. Something that he was clearly lacking at the start. Yeah, and I think, of this man, I've been thinking so much lately about the connection between pride and humility and charity. And I mean, love and how, I mean, we think of the opposite. Let me let's see how I can phrase this. We think of the opposite of pride. I think this is a conversation in the comic book, Todd. The, the, it may uh, be what is the opposite of love. So at right one point, is the opposite of love hate? Is it indifference? Is it indifference. And yeah, it I seems to me like the opposite of love is pride, which I I don't know. I mean, it's just it's a it's a thought that I've had recently because of a, a lot of different things. Uh, and my mind, like a, a lot of people and sort of society in general, uh, we tend to break things into um, opposites. You have good and evil and light and dark and love and hate and uh, men and women. And and this book really digs into uh, that 
as a thing, but I've been thinking a lot lately about the idea of love and what is it that, that prevents us from loving. And it just seems like I keep coming back to this idea of pride. And it's so interesting to see Asterios Polyp become humble and that that humility is what allows him then to connect with the people around him. And then to really connect with Hannah in a way that he did not when they were married for years. Right. Yeah. And so I guess you mentioned the, the theme of duality, which is the overriding theme of uh-huh. this work. And, and you I mean, in your summary with good reason, skip some of the more abstract dream sequences. <laughs> uh, but most of those deal with explicit discussions of dualities. Right. Um, and it's made clear that this is how Asterios views the world. I mean, this gets set up somewhat even early on. So some of his critiques for his students' work, hold on, let me find the page. He says, uh, there are two ways you can approach design through line or through form. Uh, he says, let's see, there are just two things you need to fix here, the interior and the exterior. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then there's, so there's explicit discussions of dualities and then there's these implied dualities or opposites. So he and Hannah are, um, there are times where the art changes into, uh, I guess more almost almost preliminary art instead of finished art. Uh And when he does that, um, Asterios is always drawn in like these hard cylindrical lines, kind of like uh, if you're doing a first sketch of yes. uh, a figure. Mm-hmm. And Hannah is always drawn in kind of these smooth, arching, but but messing um, kind of vague outline of a, right. of a person. She's like sketched in, and he's right. and he, he is fully. Um, I, he looks I like a robot. It. Like he's dra- mm-hmm. he's drawn with these very clean uh, cylinders and cubes. Right. And so them as two people in the same room are clearly being drawn as opposites and they could not be more different in how they think about art and how they think about, um, interactions with, with other people, uh, the way they have conversations, all those things are, are opposites. So throughout the, I guess throughout the, the graphic novel, we're getting these, these opposites. But I think as we've said, one of the messages in the end is that these opposites can come to an understanding it's not a natural state because obviously Asterios and Hannah, you know, live together and are married for years and never really come to this understanding until Asterios kind of lets go of some of the, uh, well, the viewpoint, which has been shaping his sense of reality. Uh-huh. And it's at that point that he's, he's able to connect with her, but they still remain, I think, in opposites. Um, but it's a peaceful coexistence at that point. So I'm going to ask you a question and I, uh, we may just go totally off the rails here. <laughs> We've never done that before in a previous episode. But the question is this. Do you feel like the tendency to um, towards duality, this human tendency that we have towards duality, uh, do you feel like it's – at some point there's a discussion about uh, that this is just human nature. It's how we are. It's in nature. Like duality is built into nature. We have a right hemisphere and a left hemisphere in our brain. Uh, and – and and that's just how the world is or do you believe that it's more of a construct that then um i don't know where i'm going with this exactly does that does that make sense is it something that is natural within the world or is it something that we have uh kind of an organizational schema we've overlaid on the world to help make sense of things yes thank you uh and my answer is yes (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, I, I think absolutely parts of it are just us. It, it's a way for us to help make sense of the world. In some ways, it even goes as basic as, I mean, kind of stereotyping, where in order to make sense of the world, there's too much information for our brains to process, so we simplify everything down to base elements. So we don't actually process when you walk into a room. You don't look at the details of every chair. You just stereotype those are chairs. Right. And, you know, even, you know, walking down the street, we don't process everyone around us, but we probably go to base levels of that's an adult, that's a child, you know, that's a male, that's a female. Mm-hmm. And so it's a way for it to help us process the overwhelming amount of information that exists in the world. But there's a, one of my favorite passages in Asterius Polyp is where it kind of says, Asterius Polyp always does this. He just reduces things to simple dichotomies. Right. But... Even he will admit that it's more likely that in reality there's a whole spectrum and he's just identifying two points on the spectrum. And then it says, but is the real reality that everything is just a jumbled sphere? Right. <laughs> and and there's uh, you know a billion more points within the sphere than what you could find on a spectrum. Yeah. And I think that is true. <laughs> the, <laughs> uh, I, I think that's getting more at reality that there's just... There is so much more, but at the same time, there is also often these these simple opposites that help us to process it, but there's some truth in identifying those opposites, I guess. Yeah, I, I just find myself going back and forth on this because there's a part of my brain that says, you know, it's all just a construct and... Um, and the constructs are to be broken down and it's very exciting sometimes intellectually it can be very exciting to take, uh, what seems to be a natural dual construct and then break it down and show that, no, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be like this. It could be something completely different. And, and then you feel some sort of intellectual triumph at having done that. But there's an, there's another big part of me that always finds itself drawn back to the duality of things and, it's, it's sort of like when we were talking about the hero's journey, which is another like great du- dual structure that we use to understand stories. And I think Andrew at one point asked us, you know, is this, is this the natural way that we tell stories or is, is it somebody came up with a model and now we build our stories around that model and we, and we answered that question the same way that you just answered my question, which was uh-huh. yes. Yes. Um, I don't know. Today, if you were to you know put a gun to my head and say, "Is this is this natural or is it construct?" Uh, you have you must pick one or the other. <laughs> Speaking of <laughs> dualities, <laughs> dualities, I I think I would say that it's natural. It seems like there's something uh, deep deep down inside of us that um, that is drawn to this thing in a way that is, that goes beyond uh, consciousness. So I guess. Uh... I think it's really, really f- fundamentally important to the way that we understand the world the, that we break these things that we break things down into dualities. Some of those dualities are easily e- more easily broken down than others. So, what are let's give listeners some examples of dualities that either from mysterious polyp or just from life, o- order and <laughs> chaos, light and dark, male and female, the sun and the moon, water and land. Um, okay. Now, how can we break some of these down to show what you mean by when you say it's, it can be exciting to break these down? Um, well, the idea of uh, male and female. Um, then you have someone like Bruce Jenner who comes out and uh, goes through an operation that changes his sex. I mean, changes right. his gender. And now what is he? And then our world is just totally blown up because now we have this new, uh, new form of humanity which is not completely male and not completely female it's something in the middle it's transgender 
And so people say, see, the duality uh, has been broken. And so it's just a construct. There is no well, there is no male or female. It's really just whatever you want it to be. And Well, and, and even previously we could have broken down. Uh, I mean, that's the one that's dominated contemporary discussion uh, of gender. But you could have broken that down by, by what are the gender roles right. and are those valid are those constructs or are those something naturally and inherent you know that um so you can say the, women are naturally nurturing and men are naturally breadwinners but you can find a million examples of women who are amazing breadwinners and men who are who are kind and loving and and great uh right uh, you know, connect well with it and are very nurturing with their children. And so then you say, hmm, I wonder if this thing that we always assume, this duality, this way that we always assumed that things should be broken down is really the, the natural order of things or is it something that we have constructed as humans to help us sort of get along in the world? And in a, a serious pop, there's, is it, it's with Ursula, right? There's a conversation about gender roles. Is that... Is it's it with, with somebody son? where she says that there, you know, there's, there's another culture. Yeah. Yeah. There's this other culture that doesn't have the same rules we do where they, instead of just saying there's male and female, they also add in that there are feminine men, Efe- who, men who are more effeminate more nurturing and will, so they'll stay home and help with nurturing things. And there are women who are more masculine who will help with hunting. And, and they said it's actually those who display elements of both that tend to become the leaders within that culture because it's believed they would understand everyone a little better. Right. And I think there's, some, there's something um, very profound in that, in that passage in this book um, and in that thought that the people who are able to bridge the duality, not break it down, but... And I mean, the the perfect visual example of this is yin and yang, right? Where yeah. there's something of yin inside of yang, and there's something of yang inside of yin. Well, uh, I was thinking of the term master of both worlds from our discussion of the hero's journey. Yeah. I mean, and, and that people who are able to do that and come uh, sort of cr- cross the borders between both of those worlds uh, seem to have some kind of um, power. Yeah, and no, it... I guess it, we may have touched some of this on the hero's journey, but it makes me think about, um, so the, one of the simple binaries that we have, you know, good guys and bad guys. Right. But then a lot of the heroes that we use, be it hard nosed detectives or, you know, the, uh, outsider heroes in comic books, like, like, uh, Batman or Wolverine, they don't really fit either. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, they, they use, I mean, this is the getting into, I think it's, his name was Adam Smith who talked about America's mythology of regeneration through violence. They use the violence of the bad guys in order to protect the good guys. Right. Uh, but they never really or you know, the good people, I guess, uh, instead of, you know, the, the citizens of the city. So the cowboy who will ride in and get rid of the black hats. Um, but he doesn't settle in to the town. He has to write off because he doesn't really fit in with the good guys, but he's also definitely not a bad guy. And so that's someone who is bridging, you know, this, and that's that kind of, uh, hero is one that is so prevalent in American popular culture. <laughs> so, I mean, that is our, our go-to, you know, Jack Bauer who he can't play by the rules. Right. You know, he, he can't fit in with CTU cause he, he won't listen. He won't take orders, but it's always for the greater good. Uh, and, you know, and he's, he's, torching people in ways that the U.S. government won't allow, but it's to get, you know, the knowledge of where the bomb is so that he can save the entire, you know, eastern seaboard of the United States. Right. So I guess what I'm saying is, yes, uh, <laughs> we val- we tend to value those who can 
bridge those and not do it by just breaking it down and saying these are false. They just happen to have parts of both sides. Yeah, there's um, – this is – we may just have to end up <laughs> cutting all of this out, but I'm actually really um, interested in this discussion right now. So there's a, there's a French uh, anthropologist called uh, Eliad is his last name, Mercier Eliad, and he studies uh, primitive – these primitive tribes – and he says that um, that humanity has has gone through the same story over and over again, where you have a tribe, uh, and the tribe gets too big for the place in which it lives, and so some group will break off of the tribe, um, and they they go off into the into the wild and chaotic world uh, to find a new place to settle, um, and it's really important that they that they break off from this ordered society and go out into chaos. Um, and when they get to, to the place where they where they are going to settle, um, they either find a, a tree or a rock, or they uh, will stick a pole in the ground and they will say, "This is the center of the universe," um, and establish order around this this binary. So we're, we're going to say, "This is this will be our ordered civilization. We will order ourselves around this pole that's in the new center of our universe, and everything beyond the borders that will be chaos." And and then they build their society around it, and at some point it becomes so rigid uh, and so big uh, that people will then break off and go back out into chaos. Uh, but they never stay in chaos. They'll always find a place where they can then set a pole in the ground and and reorder their world. Um, and it, when I was uh, when I was a grad student, I felt like so many people would talk about the chaos as if that were the end. Like, and now we've broken off. 1968, we broke away from, we recognized the, the folly of the man, and we broke away, and we did all these amazing demonstrations in Berkeley and in Paris and everywhere, and, uh, and, and now we're free from the tyranny of ordered society or something. And I'm like, no, you just built a new one. I mean, like you will always, there's, there's something deep, deep inside of us that will always, always go back and build a binary. We just do. It's just, it's just who we are and there's no escaping it. And the best that we can do is to recognize that we have that tendency, um, and and occasionally sort of take stock of, of these, of the order that we've created in our life and, and make sure that it still kind of holds up to scrutiny uh, but, but never fool ourselves into thinking that that because Bruce Jenner has uh, changed his sex, that now all of a sudden that um, that duality is absolutely meaningless. That binary is completely meaningless because I I don't I don't think that it is. Not that one, right. and not many of the many of the binaries that we've set up. Uh, they seem to um, to go beyond the. I mean, they've they've uh, held up to the test of time, and I think that they probably will despite you know people saying that they don't i don't know if that made any sense but it did i want to send on something more lighthearted, and so i'm trying to find a way <laughs> i was trying to think of like binaries that we can't break down and i was like coke and pepsi star trek and star wars <laughs> no i mean i think that I, I think that for me the beauty in this is i mean the beauty in the story and and the thing that to me saves this book from from being just this highbrow kind of art for art's sake, look what I can do with um, with my art, uh, is this simple, beautiful story of this man uh, finding his way back into connection with this woman that he really loves. And they are opposites. 
I mean, he is clean, clean lines and right angles, and she is, uh, you know, a, a rough sketch and and soft curves, uh, and yet they're able to really connect uh, because he's able to find humility, and I think she she is as well. There's something well, beautiful. I, I in think that. she her change is also that she has a little more confidence in her art. Yeah. Um, cause, uh, when he goes to see her, she says, you know, I've never stopped trying to do art, but for a long time I struggled. And then I remember something that you said, and she shows her with, with some pride. She shows, uh, a stereos, uh, the room that has, um, her, her newer sculptures. And you can tell that she feels like she's, she's had a breakthrough and that she's doing something that's more worthwhile than anything that she's done before. Yeah. And her, her finding that confidence and him finding that humility allows them to find something beautiful and, and beautiful, even if it's short lived. And, yes. and it seems like there's something in the end. Uh, we, we, one of our very first episodes was about astonishing X-Men and th- that Kitty pride thing where she says, um, whenever we find that crazy thing, that's happiness, we just have to hold on to it for dear life because it's here and then it's gone. And there's something in the end of this, I, I, I would. I wonder if this author is thinking about that with the, the bullet shooting through space and the meteor coming to hit them. I mean, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that he's familiar with Whedon's work, but yeah. there's something about that. Like when you find that connection and the the beauty of um, of being attached to someone and having that humble, that loving relationship then it's the best thing in the world and you just have to hold on to it because it's going to be gone in a flash. And I think it's uh, I, part of the tragedy of this, even though it ends on that happier note, is that it took, you know, serious hitting that, that rock bottom of his apartment being right. burned down around him and just buying a ticket to as far away as he could get for him to, I guess, mature to the point where he was ready for that relationship. Yeah. Because he'd been in a relationship with Hannah that uh, if it hadn't been... I mean, there's no, you know, implication that there was any physical abuse or anything, but he was unintentionally emotionally abusive to her, I guess right. I would say, because of his self-centeredness and his, um, just his overwhelming presence in every conversation that you, you see, Yeah, uh, you know, that this dominates her, uh, he, he needed to get broken down in order to have a real, uh, emotional connection and a real... Uh, like you're saying, the the kind of mature um, relationship that is, you know, the, kind of the goal of the, uh, uh, what I'm sure would have been the goal of the original relationship if he'd known how to have a real emotional connection. Right. But the but I mean, there's yeah, this is it's, it's a very Buddhist kind of thing to just say. Well, you know, like just live in the moment. You can get so caught up in the past and what, what if, and Oh, think of how beautiful their life would have been if he had been a different person when he was younger, but he wasn't but would he have ever. Yeah, he wasn't. And he reached a point where he was what she needed and she was what he needed. And, Oh, I guess we never mentioned this in all the discussions of dualities. Uh, when he's in, uh, the city, he, his, he randomly, someone attacks him in a bar and he gets his, his eye gets taken oh, out. Yeah. And so he now only has one eye, uh, this person who's been obsessed with dualities throughout his life. And right. it, there's a couple of scenes where it points out that he really is see, literally seeing the world in a different way at this uh, point because he's lost his dual vision. Yeah, he lost the ability, his depth perception. But but yet that's 
I mean, it's the last thing that he needed to sort of send him back to find Hannah. And yeah, I mean, there's something ironic about about losing your depth perception and losing the ability to see the duality, and that that's the moment when you're actually able to sort of bridge the bridge the gap between well, know, side A and that. side B. Yeah, and and just. I guess if he, uh, you know, with that earlier discussion about which which is the reality to actually now function in reality, yeah. <laughs> instead of this kind of uh, esoteric and abstract academic academic jargon that he was using to to present a persona before. Yeah, I don't know if anybody's gonna like this episode, but I've actually I feel like I've really come around on this story. <laughs> I have as well. <laughs> like, uh, like I said, like at the beginning, I'm like, well, I chose it because of the craft of the the narrative and more than the narrative itself. But now I think that there's a lot more to the narrative. Yeah, it's be- it is a beautiful. It's a it's a simple story that can easily get lost in the highbrow kind of esoteric theoretical discussion of duality, which to me is actually also really important. Uh, but the story, this beautiful simple story, I think is what. Um, pushes it up a notch and 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 so i'm happy to say that i think this is a great character and a great story and i think it's worth noting uh to our listeners if you're thinking when we say we're talking about a comic book don't be thinking traditional superhero comic book art (laughs) (laughs) with this no it's like Uh, mouse in some ways oh yeah it's it's experimental it's uh from one page to the next you you don't know what artistic style you don't know if the humans are gonna be drawn fully fleshed out or if it's just gonna be outlines or uh, you don't know what color palette you're getting from one page to the next. So there's a lot of really fascinating things that happen with the art itself. And it is not kind of the, the classic, which, yeah, I mean, he's done. He's drawn one of the most iconic Batman stories ever. So he can certainly dwell in that wheelhouse. Yeah. But with this, he's, he's doing something a little, uh, deliberately different from, from the classic superhero style. It definitely feels more, um, like if Picasso were to sit down and write a graphic novel, this may be something along the lines of what he would have written. Yes. <laughs> well, and I, I mean, early on you had mentioned, I guess right before we started recording, we tend to do family friendly <laughs> topics. He said, this was not very family friendly. And there is, you know, in his various conquests, you do, there's some depictions of nudity, but it's very Picasso-esque of new descending a staircase style. Right. Of, uh, it's, yeah, not, of it's nothing that you wouldn't see if you didn't go if you went to like uh, the the Met or the Prado or the Louvre or something like that. Yeah. So. Yeah, the purpose of it is not scintillation. It is to uh, kind of reveal some about uh, Asterios's character. And actually, this uh, maybe I don't know how I don't even know what how long we're going here, but um, yeah, I think we're getting close about close to an hour i did have one other thought and, and it had to do Our with producer andrew was silently nodding his head as you say we're close yeah so um so this was the thought that i had when we talked about mouse we talked about how um he kept uh spiegelman kept uh like all of the profanity out of mouse uh, so that at the very end when when this character gets mad at his father uh and and curses at him you really feel the weight of that in a way that you wouldn't if it had been just sort of laced with profanity throughout. Uh, and in this, I feel like we have this almost complete opposite where it starts with this, um, this guy watching porn and then you see various of his conquests throughout. And the thing that stands out is the fact that you don't get that at the end. It's again, like it's the opposite <laughs> of what yeah. we see, but, it, but it has a really powerful effect that the thing that's so beautiful at the end of this story um, is the fact that they're able to connect without uh, the need to resort to, you know, racy, uh, uh, illicit depictions of, you know, 
sexuality. It's just that, but there's something so beautiful and so intimate in the way that they just talk to each other. And if I can uh, offer my own, uh, you know, bookend where we kind of go back to where we started the conversation, where I was talking about the craft of it, that final scene uh, throughout most of the book, you're getting very monochromatic pages where everything is in blues uh, or everything is in yellows or everything's in purples. And it is in the final scene of uh, Asterios and Hannah when they're having that real connection that you actually see all of those colors combined for, I think, the first time in the entire graphic yeah. novel. Where they're sitting on a yellow couch. He's wearing uh, pink. She's wearing green. There's there's blue in there. And uh, whereas pretty much the rest of it has been largely monochromatic. Yeah, and the lettering so, again. I just can't. I can't praise enough the lettering in that uh, in that final scene when they're talking. And the more that they talk, the more entwined their their um, dialogue bubbles come. It's really beautiful. Yeah, one of the very last things that they say, and it has both of their. So it has her round bubble with his squared bubble imposed directly over the top. So they're actually, cause they're saying the words at the same time and it's rest in peace. Yeah. Well, well that about wraps up this episode. Not our lightest or jauntiest episode, <laughs> but, uh, I think we both worked out, uh, some of our thoughts on a serious polyp in a way that neither of us had reached before. So that wraps this up. Thanks for joining us. Please subscribe to the protagonist podcast and iTunes, and please leave us a review. It helps with our uh, viewership and our self-worth. And links to things we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com. And that's where you can find a list of all of our shows and other information about our little project here. And you can email us at feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, at Jay Dorowski, and our producer Andrew is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And we have a Facebook fan page at facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. And if you want to buy a topic for us to discuss or just support us a little with a financial donation to help us with our web hosting costs, uh, you can click on the support button on our homepage or go to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. So long. I'm just going to throw in there right now. Do the review right now, because you're probably about to switch to another podcast. You're going to be pulling out your phone or getting on your computer and hitting iTunes. Just go ahead and access the iTunes store, open our link, and and give us some five stars. Write a quick note. Write a quick note. If you mention that you want a pun run in your review, I will give you a pun run in the next episode we record. (laughs) But really, just do it right now while you're pulling it out to turn us off. everyone and welcome to the prota- oh dear oh one once again <laughs> why do we choose a name that causes us to stumble every other recording <laughs> hello everyone and- but do you do that hang on do you do that when you're like oh yeah i'm on a podcast it's called the <laughs> <laughs> i mean i get it out every single time in conversation i say yeah i'm on a podcast it's called the protagonist yeah, podcast I, I, i'm pretty sure I, I do just fine with that but for some reason when i'm trying to record this intro